Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture by the Spectator world. I'm your host, Amber Athey, the Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Ollie London for the second time. And we're, we're so excited to have him back. This time, we'll be covering his new book. It's called Detransition, a memoir. And Ollie shares his incredible journey from wanting to become a Korean woman to accepting his uh, identity as a British man. And, and Ollie, for our listeners who maybe didn't catch your last appearance on the podcast, could you start by talking a little bit about your story in terms of how you started questioning your gender identity and where that ultimately led you? Sure. Well, it's great to be back on the show. Um, thank you very much, Amber, for having me. Yes. Yeah, so my journey started as a child. I would question my gender identity. I used to play with Barbie dolls. I used to play kind of dress up with girls and women's costumes. As a kid, I had like a costume box. So I would always be more interested in the girls' costumes. And I always had an interest in them. I became a teenager. I used to get bullied a lot, mostly for my looks. So I used to get bullied for my appearance, my nose. Everybody would say it was very big, but also people would say I was very feminine or girls wouldn't want to date me. They were saying I was too much like a girl. You know, I was too much like a woman. So, you know, I always had people saying I was more feminine throughout my life. And then as I became an adult, I just started changing myself through plastic surgery and changing my entire life just to try and improve myself and feel happier and to prove the bullies wrong. But over time, that developed into kind of very severe body dysmorphia. But it was also coupled with gender dysphoria when you know, throughout my life, I was always trying to look more feminine. I was having surgery in Korea, trying to have a more of a feminine aesthetic. And then it got to a point where I was like, you know, so many people are telling me I'm more feminine. Maybe I'm meant to be trans. And were there societal pressures outside of your internal gender dysphoria that were maybe starting to say that it was possible for you to become a woman or identify as a woman? Yes. Yeah, so it, it, it's in modern society, it's very easy because wherever you go, you're exposed to it, whether you're on TikTok and you see constant videos on the homepage of people that are men, they're being women, and it seems so easy. And then you have TV shows like RuPaul's Drag Race, which so many people idolize. So you really have in popular culture so many influences affecting, you know, young people, but also, you know, it affected me as well because it seems so easy. I thought, you know what, if this isn't for me, I can always change back and stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, I did undergo the knife. I had um, facial feminization, so I had all my bones shaved. So, like, even now I've detransitioned, I still have a very feminine face, which... You know, I wish I could change, but I don't want to resort to any more surgery. But there's definitely a lot of pressure out there, especially social media and, you know, how easy it is to access you know, these things and how easy it seems to change your gender and self-identify these days. You know, when there used to be checks and balances, you'd have to go to a doctor to, you know, medically transition. Now it's just anyone can suddenly wake up and, you know, want to change. What was the moment when you had that spark of, oh, no, I've gone so far down this rabbit hole, but I think I've made a mistake. Um, well, it was really just looking in the mirror and just reflecting myself. And I was thinking, you know, I'm still very unhappy. I was very unhappy after my surgery. Sorry, I was very happy after my surgery for two months. So I had this almost kind of euphoric feeling where I would look in the mirror, I'd feel amazing and everybody would give me compliments. Everybody would say I would look like a beautiful woman and stuff. So, you know, I had all that positive validation, but it got to a point where I was looking in the mirror and I was just thinking, I want to change more. I'm still not happy. I need to change more. And then I reflected on that. I was thinking about doing body surgery in Thailand. And then I really thought and pondered on that. And the doctors made it sound so easy and so painless. And, and you know, they were more than willing to accommodate my requests 
in terms of what surgeries I wanted. But then when I was thinking about that, I was thinking, do I really want to go through that? Because that's very irreversible. So I had to have a really long, hard think. And, you know, I was struggling to think what's best for the, for me, you know, should I go forward with this medical transition or should I just stay the way I am? And it was reflecting on that. And then I, you know, I started speaking to a therapist. I started going to church just to try and become more aware of the decisions I was making and the harm I was causing to myself. Because at the end of the day, I was harming myself the most, you know, trying to almost mutilate myself to in a pursuit of happiness, which was unattainable. It sounds like maybe there was a bit of an addictive aspect to these surgeries as well. Absolutely. I mean, I started my very first surgery in 2013 when I was living in Korea, and that was merely to fix my nose because I had a very big nose. It was very crooked. I just wanted to fix that. So I never set out to have all of these surgeries. I simply wanted to fix one thing. And what happened is the first surgery went wrong, and then the second surgery on the nose went wrong, and then the third and the fourth went wrong. So it then became an addiction where I constantly wanted to change other features. You know, I thought if I'm fixing my nose, I might as well have a jaw surgery. I might as well have my cheekbones reduced and eye surgery. And it became really kind of a snowball effect where I couldn't stop. Mm. And I would only have temporary happiness for several months, which is what many people that transition um, know when you have a female to male, they feel great. You know, for six months, they finally feel that they found eternal happiness. And then after that period of time wears off, they realize they've made a mistake and they want more surgery or they want to correct it. And then at that point, it's too late. So, you know, a lot of people experience that great feeling for a few months. They feel new. They feel amazing. And then they realize, you know, they've made a mistake. And that's kind of how I felt at the end of it all. You mentioned that the doctors in Thailand told you that the body surgery would be painless. I mean, that I'm sure set off kind of alarm bells in your head because you had had all of these prior surgeries that maybe weren't quite as invasive or weren't as um, necessarily permanent. And I think you talk in the book about the physical pain that was brought on by those surgeries. Right. I mean, you know, I'm actually very much used to physical pain. So I've had my jawbone shaved down where I was unable to speak for two weeks. I've had eye surgeries before. I haven't been able to open my eyes for three days. I've even had surgery on my chest before to remove fat and nipple correction. And that was so painful. So I've kind of used to pain. But yeah, the doctors in Thailand made it sound super, super easy. But, you know, based on my knowledge of surgery, you know, I'm almost like an expert of surgery. I knew which parts of the body's were going to be more effective. I knew which parts, you know, were going to hurt. And I knew if I was going to have breast implants, that would probably be the most painful thing, you know, because I don't, I'm a boy, so I don't have natural breasts. So I knew that was going to be a difficult thing, but they were saying, you know, it's super easy. We'll check you out of the hospital after one day. You can go to the hotel. You'll be absolutely fine. And you know, they were very happy to take the money and, you know, go along with it and stuff without kind of checks and balances. And no, it's partly my fault. I would always have surgery in foreign countries because it's easier, you know, because when I was in that state of obsession with wanting to look a certain way, you know, wanting to become a woman, I would just go to a doctor that would say yes. So if a doctor in the UK or America said no, I would just find one that wouldn't even question me. And, and, you know, that's the problem a lot of young people have these days. You know, they're going out searching for doctors, they're cutting corners, you know, doctors that might not have the best medical care or ethics. And we're seeing a lot of young people risking their lives, you know, to undergo transition surgeries or other surgeries. So I'm glad I was able to wake up and, and stop that because, you know, who knows what could have happened. At the end of the day, how much money did you ultimately spend on all of the surgeries? So over a period since 2013, so about 10 years, between I think about $250,000, 
and that's including uh, fillers, Botox. I was getting them like literally every few weeks and all the vampire facials and then all the surgeries. So yeah, that was probably over about 10 years. Do you think that's typical amount, maybe a little bit more than the average trans person? And what are some of the side effects aside from uh, the physical pain that you mentioned from getting that much done? So it depends on the surgeries. So I actually had 32 surgeries to change my entire face. So I've had so many surgeries. If someone's actually transitioning, it normally costs them about $70,000 to do the body surgery and also the facial feminization. But, you know, I did a lot more than that. I've had six nose surgeries. I've had two chin surgeries, three eye surgeries, three facelifts. So I've kind of done a lot more. And I'm really, you know, besides the physical pain and suffering you go through at the time, which I think is almost a a form of self-harm. And a lot of people that, you know, want to transition, they're very unhappy with themselves. They have severe depression. You know, they have a lot of mental health struggles. And it's almost like they feel they deserve to inflict self-harm upon themselves and have these surgeries. And that's kind of the mentality I had. You know, I was not in a good place. I was, you know, going into these surgeries thinking it was going to make me happy. And really, it was just I was mutilating and harming myself. But besides the physical pain, I do have a lot of scarring. So I have scarring on my nipples. I have scars all over my nose, under my lip. Uh, I even have, how many do I have? I have like eight titanium brackets inside my face because I had the chin surgery and the cheek surgery before. And then I have like 24 titanium screws in my face. So like I really did kind of mutilate myself. And, you know, sometimes I get jaw lock when I'm trying to yawn. I have very little movement in my muscles in my face. It's very hard for me to smile properly. It's very hard for me to show expression. And I kind of feel, you know, I feel regret. I feel like, why did I do that to myself? You know, Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of young people are being influenced into this. They're seeing adverts for these transitional surgeries on TikTok, on Instagram. And it just seems so easy. And in the US, a lot of people can get these surgeries on Medicaid or Medicare. You know, I paid for everything myself, but a lot of people these days, they can easily get access and claim it on health insurance, you know, gender affirming care in the US can be claimed on Medicaid or Medicare, which is which is very dangerous. You know, it's almost encouraging young people to have these surgeries. Sure. Yeah. And there's uh, there's advocacy for the, the military to pay for these surgeries for service members as well. Mm. What what was the the motivation for you to write this book? I mean, I know you talk a lot about almost a warning to young people who are questioning their gender to explore their their mental health before they go through with some of the the physical the physical surgeries or the hormonal treatments was was that really the impetus for writing this was hey guys this is what happened to me this is where it ultimately led me and you should maybe have a think before you go down the same road Absolutely. And I want every single person that may be questioning their identity to read this book and also for parents to read this book, because it's not just, you know, it's not just a book talking about my story. It's talking about the broader issue that we're having right now. So I have chapters that are covering gender affirming care. I have chapters that are covering different state laws, the progress that's being made, such as in Tennessee, where they have recently banned children attending adult drag shows and they're banning gender affirming care. So I'm talking about that. I'm also talking about how people can turn their life around and realize that going under surgery or changing yourself, changing your pronouns and stuff is not the right solution. There are other ways to improve your life. There's other ways to seek happiness. 
So it's really kind of encouraging people to kind of really think and question what they're doing and try to turn themselves around. And also the book is covering the influences that are really affecting young people right now. So we have social media, we have the education system, where in some schools we have, you know, preschoolers being taught books about changing their pronouns and changing their gender. We also have, you know, certain politicians that are pushing these laws. Uh, We have LGBT organizations that in the case of the New York Times recently, they were adding pressure on the New York Times simply because they were calling out an article that was questioning the gender gender affirming care system. So you know, the book is detailing all of those factors and how we as a society, parents, young people, people that can make decisions like politicians, how we can find a solution for this, because it's a real issue. And I don't want other people to mutilate themselves. I don't want other people to hurt themselves. So no, I, I hope this book will help a lot of people that are struggling and also help a lot of parents navigate through this difficult journey and realize that four in five children that have gender dysphoria grow out of it as an adult. So, you know, we shouldn't be diagnosing them with gender dysphoria and then simply putting them on puberty blockers or hormones. It's incredibly harmful. So, you know, I think this book is really going to change the narrative out there. And, you know, I've got a lot of hate from trans activists since announcing the book. I've had a lot of death threats, but, you know, I won't allow them to silence me because I feel, you know, this book is going to help a lot of people. I think that's really courageous for you to take that stance. And it sounds like the book is really jam packed full of the type of information that parents who are concerned about this social contagion would want to know. In the course of your research for this book, what were some of the surprising things that you uncovered about these gender transition surgeries and hormonal treatments for youth? So one of the very shocking things I discovered, and it's in my book, is that uh, children with autism are six times more likely to have gender dysphoria. Also, children with bipolar, children that suffer from other conditions like eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, or schizophrenia, they too are more likely to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria. And this is based on research from a Canadian study. So there's there's a lot of kids that already have pre-existing conditions, that already have extreme vulnerabilities. And these doctors are taking advantage of these children, you know, and then misdiagnosing them. In the book, I also talk about a clinic that was in the UK called the Tavistock Clinic, which really was like a horror story. There were so many kids that had other conditions and whistleblowers have said that the doctors completely ignored if they had autism or bipolar. And they simply said, you must be trapped in the wrong body. Therefore, we must transition you urgently. And what happened after these children left the clinic, they were prescribed puberty blockers and hormones. The actual hospital did no long-term research or checkups on these children. So as soon as the child left the hospital, they really didn't care. They didn't check in one year's time. How are these hormones affecting these children? Are they okay? Are they having any side effects? And this is also why we don't have data. You know, we don't have data that says, oh, there's 50% detransition regrets. A lot of these hospitals, they conduct their own research, their own studies, which are very biased. And they always say there's only a 3% detransition rate. That's because these are the clinics they're paying for their own studies. So it's completely biased. And also most of these clinics, including the St. Louis Clinic in Missouri, they also weren't doing checkups on children. So there was no research to see how who was staying on these hormones, who was staying on puberty blockers, and whether this was helping these children or not. So, they, so they're not even doing the research. Therefore, their studies are completely biased. And that's really skewing the data because, you know, they're saying that nobody's detransitioning. It's a very small minority of people. But actually, we know from what we're seeing online, what we're seeing in the news and, you know, in, in different state senates, we're seeing detransitioners speak up and say, these doctors mutilated me. Chloe Cole, the detransitioner, is actually suing 
the uh, Kaiser Clinic that mutilated her at age 15. So, you know, we can't trust the data that is biased from these hospitals because they're not even checking on their own patients. And the Missouri whistleblower, a person called Jamie Reed, who worked at this clinic, even said that the doc- some of the doctors were saying they don't care about the patient once they're out the door. They're not interested. It's not their concern anymore. So they really had no duty of care. And no, ethically, that's so wrong. A doctor's duty is to protect their patients and do what's best for them. So you know, the book is really diving deep into that and the harm it's causing right now. And also, you know, I think there is hope for the future. We're seeing over 24 states are now either passing or proposing bills to ban gender-affirming care in children. You know, we're seeing places like Arkansas, Alabama, Missouri really leading the way in this. And I also want to change the narrative with the book because, you know, trans activists will always label anyone that tries to question the system as transphobic. You're a bigot, you're transphobic. You know, I get called horrible names. I get called a Nazi, like horrible names. And it's not transphobic to speak up for children. It's not transphobic to speak up for women. So I want to change that narrative because it's harmful. And it's just a simple tactic for activists to try and shut down debate. Look what they did to the New York Times trying to cancel it. They're trying to cancel free speech. So, you know, we all need to speak up and fight back and realize it's not transphobic to want to help children. That statistic that you shared about the other mental health issues that are usually present with individuals who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria was really fascinating. And I think it makes sense, right? Because these are people who are more likely to feel uncomfortable with themselves. But to to make that logical leap on on behalf of medical doctors to say, well, if you feel uncomfortable with yourself, then you must be have been born in the wrong body or have been born in the wrong gender, as you pointed out, doesn't solve those other mental health issues that, that these kids are dealing with. And so could you just go into a little more detail about about that, about how harmful that might be for someone to have to think that they have a physical cure for a mental health problem? Absolutely. And that really is the case because the vast majority of these children do have other conditions. You know, a lot of them have depression. So the doctors seem to, you know, they tell the parents that this is the cure for your child's depression. This is the cure for their autism almost, which is so, so medically wrong to do that. And they think it's like a quick fix. And, you know, in many cases, the kids, once they take these, you know, testosterones and stuff, they will be happy for like six months. They have a serotonin and a dopamine rush. You know, they start to see the physical changes. They feel happy, but it's a very temporary fix because we have to think and consider that if a child or if a person is on testosterone for their entire life, they're on puberty blockers, they are going to have a lot of health complications. We're seeing, you know, there was a study published the other day, it was uh, featured in the Daily Mail that children are seven times more likely to grow up and have heart murmurs or heart attacks or strokes because of taking puberty blockers and hormones on a long-term basis. So, you know, it's incredibly harmful, but doctors are simply, you know, seeing this as a quick fix. Parents, you know, many parents in these cases where they take the kids to doctors, they're trusting these doctors. These, you know, because they really want the best for their kid and, you know, they don't want their kid to be suffering. And, you know, we get it. It's very difficult as a young person when they obviously have pre-existing conditions. It's a real struggle to navigate through that and to find themselves. So many doctors are going to hospitals trying to get help and answers from doctors. But the doctors are, you know, I'm not even doing their duty of care. They're telling parents, if you don't transition your child, you're going to have a suicide. That's basically the argument. And a lot of trans activists use that argument, like Rachel Levine, the U.S. Assistant Health Secretary. They always try to use that argument. But we actually have to consider if you're putting a child on hormones, puberty blockers, you're doing surgeries, that is surely going to make the depression and other pre-existing conditions worse. 
because you're messing with their body, you're messing with their brain chemicals, you're going to give them health conditions in the future. We have cases of you know, children that are medically transitioned through hormones, their sexual organs change. And when they become an adult, you know, some people can't even walk properly. Some people become incontinent. Some people bleed, you know, in certain areas of their body. It's just so harmful. And we're seeing it as a quick fix that, oh, your child is struggling right now. Let's get them some hormones. And it's very, very easy. There's no checks and balances. So, you know, even parents that take their doctors to a clinic, they're struggling with their child because of the other conditions. Mm -hmm. And the doctors are offering this temporary solution. And the parents, you know, they feel they have no other option but to listen to the doctor. It sounds a bit like emotional blackmail, to be honest with you. And I've also heard of cases, Ollie, of parents who refuse to put their children through gender transitions. They actually lose custody of their child. Mm -hmm. So there's a fear aspect to it as well for parents of what happens if they don't comply. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I speak to a lot of parents every day because I'm really trying to listen to parents um, and see what their concerns are. And a lot of parents are losing custody. We're seeing um, states like California now has become a sanctuary city. So if one parent doesn't want their child to transition in Texas, the other parent can take the child to California to transition them. And there's nothing the other parent can do that objects. And we're seeing cases with the Missouri clinic that was exposed with the whistleblower. We were seeing that children from divorced families are much more likely to be medically transitioned and put into gender affirming care. We saw a case in these leaked emails of this um, mother of a child. She wanted to transition the child. The father didn't. When the clinic asked the mother, what are your child's pronouns? Uh, she said that he's still a boy, but he wants to be a girl. So the clinic said, you know, when they choose their new pronouns, come back to us. So then the mother came back a, a month later. She changed the boy's name to a girl's name, changed the pronouns. And then suddenly the clinic was like, OK, we could do this. The dad was furious, but there was nothing he could do because, you know, they would just say that the dad was abusive. And the mother in this case was fighting custody with the dad in court. And, you know, she was trying to claim the dad was abusive and he really wasn't. He just didn't want his child to transition. So we're seeing a lot of cases of that where parental rights are being taken away. We have Washington State. I testified before the Senate recently, and they're trying to pass a bill which allows children that are taken from custody of their parents, whether they're in foster care, whether they're in a homeless shelter or a youth shelter, or they're physically taken from their parents, they can now be medically transitioned without their parents even knowing. So the system is being abused. It's being abused because these doctors or these professionals can take a child from their parent because they can claim that the parent is abusive for not allowing that child to transition, and they can use that loophole to medically transition a child, which is just awful to take away parental rights. It sounds like a fantastically well-researched book. And I'm wondering, as you were going through these different cases, what did you learn about the doctors? What was their motivation for prescribing these treatments? Well, there's a lot of money involved. In 2022, across the US, these gender clinics made $2.2 billion. This is also projected to rise to $5 billion by 2030. And if we consider there's now 100 pediatric gender clinics across the US and compare that to 15 years ago, there was zero. So in the last 15 years, we've seen this phenomenon of people constantly transitioning and changing their pronouns, which we didn't see this, you know, in the 90s. We didn't see this so much in the 80s. Um, so it's really a recent phenomenon. And these clinics are almost, they create the problem in society. They create people to question themselves. They offer the solution, which is medication, which is getting this child into gender affirming care. And that's a lifelong commitment. You know, these children will be on medication for life. So they're going to be a customer of big pharma for life. 
So it's hugely lucrative. And many of these doctors, you know, some of these doctors are generally delusional. They actually think they're helping. You know, they really believe they're helping this child. We have other doctors that, you know, have been in leaked emails clearly wanting profit. Rachel Levine was caught in a leaked email. It was on the Daily Caller. She had a leaked email or he had a leaked email with um, a hospital talking about return on investment, profitability, how to make the clinic profitable. So, you know, they're just trying to get as many children through these doors. They're trying to confuse these children in schools from a young age. So then when they're a teenager, they can get them into the um, gender affirming care system and have them as a medical customer for life, which is just absolutely crazy. And, you know, there's, there's so much money involved. Wow. You mentioned earlier that there's been a massive backlash from transgender activists against you for this book and against other detransitioners. And I even saw some of them claiming that you were never trans. And so I wanted yeah. to get your reaction to that. So they love to always say that a detransitioner was never trans. But it's interesting because these are the same people. Trans activists are the people that say that anyone is allowed to self-identify or claim to be the opposite sex. And no one is allowed to question them. So they always say that. So you see a man that will put on a wig and have a beard. He'll go into a women's toilet. And maybe he'll assault a woman, but the trans activists will defend them and say that's their identity, they're trans, you know, you're a bigot, you're transphobic. So it's interesting that they would say that, but anyone that dares to detransition or, you know, get out of this cult, because I call it a cult because it is a cult, you know, to, to escape this cult, anyone that detransitions is already labeled as you were never trans, you weren't really trans. You know, some people are saying, oh, you're doing it for attention and stuff. You're grifting. And I just think it's ridiculous because firstly, these are the people that say anyone's allowed to self-identify. You can be who you want. And secondly, I actually did more than most of these people you know, that are attacking me. Most of these people, they have beards. You know, they've got long hair. They claim to be a girl. She, her pronouns. You know, all these flags on their bios on Twitter and stuff. And I think oh, you're such a hypocrite. You know, to judge me, I had facial feminization. I was confused my whole life. I've had so many surgeries. I was living as a woman. I was going out on red carpets at the Cannes Film Festival in the dress and heels. So I actually really was really like making an effort. Yet these people think it's okay to try to discredit me. And they're really trying hard to discredit me. And I just think it's it's very sad. It's very sad. These people are hypocrites. They don't even see it. And, you know, I can take the abuse. I'm an adult, but I, it's it's horrific to see what they're doing to 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds that are going through struggles. They're detransitioning. They've been through hell and back. And they're trying to, you know, they're telling them to kill themselves every day. They're giving them death threats. They're trying to discredit them. And that's that's awful to see. You know, I, I can take the abuse as an adult. But when I see these vulnerable individuals being attacked simply for speaking out, I think it's absolutely awful. Yeah, it's truly horrible. And by the way, there are a lot more lucrative and easier grifts than doing the research to write an entire book about these gender transition surgeries and hormones, particularly as they pertain to kids. So I don't know. I think if you're grifting, you're probably in the wrong business, Ollie. But, uh. You know, you know I, I always say that I've actually lost, I lost so many brand deals when I detransitioned. So I was doing hair products. I was doing women's clothing. I had so many brand deals. And, you know, I got canceled from all those brand deals because they were saying I was transphobic. So you know, when people try to say, oh, he's trying to profit off this, I'm actually not. I've actually had an awakening where I'm actually trying to help people. I've lost more than I've gained. You know, I've lost so many brand deals. I've been disinvited from New York Fashion Week. I was always front row at most of the shows. Disinvited this year because everyone thinks I'm transphobic. So I've actually lost a lot more than I gained. And, you know, I, I, I don't care about that because at the end of the day, if I can help people, if I can help stop what's going on right now, because it's it's a real problem. You know, it's not something we can just turn a blind eye to. The fact that children are being mutilated. And it's not OK. It will never be OK. So, you know, we need more voices speaking up. And, you know, that's why I'm trying to 
dedicate my time and energy um, based on my own experiences and my own research to try and help people because it's never going to be acceptable in society to harm a child. What would be your advice to a young person who has maybe started the journey of a gender transition and maybe has the mindset of it's too late to go back? It's never too late to go back. It's never too late to stop. Obviously, it's difficult if you start your journey, you're on hormones and puberty blockers, but there is a way over time, you might have to still take them for a few months, but you slowly reduce the dosage of the medication you're on. So obviously, they have to do that with the doctor and stuff. So that that's a more tricky situation, but it's never too late to stop. You know, No matter what you've done to yourself, no matter how far along you are in your journey, you need to realize that you're perfect the way you are. You should be happy with the way you are. And this is only going to give you a very temporary happiness. And then you're going to spend most of your life in regret, which is what we're seeing with many detransitioners, many adults as well that are detransitioned. They live their life and then they suddenly develop even more severe depression. They have more health complications because of what they've done to themselves. So, you know, it's okay for a girl to be a tomboy. It's okay for a boy to maybe play with Barbie dolls. But, you know, medically transitioning is never going to be good. It's never going to help that person. You know, if if a boy wants to play Barbie dolls and he likes pink, you know, that's fine. But don't go out to hospitals and, you know, it's never too late to turn back and just realize We all go through identity struggles. We all question ourselves, but transitioning medically is never going to be the answer. The last time we spoke, we had a a good conversation about your faith journey and how going to church and finding peace with Jesus Christ had helped you feel more at ease with yourself and and come to terms with what's happened to you. And I I wanted to get an update from you on, on where you are in your faith journey. Yeah, so the the faith for me has been incredible. I mean, that that was really the driving factor that made me, you know, switch up and realize I was really harming myself, but also I was harming other people because, you know, people see my TikTok videos and stuff and I don't want to be responsible for somebody else wanting to be trans or I don't want to be responsible for somebody else questioning their identity. I actually want to be a person that helps people that, you know, saves people's lives. So then that going to church and you know, reading the Bible, speaking with members of the Christian community, that really made me realize it was like a wake up call that, you know, I have a purpose in life and that is to try and help people and not spread, you know, a wrong message um, through my content, my TikToks and stuff. Um, so it's been going great. And obviously now is Lent. You know, I'm fasting as much as I can. It's quite hard to get used to, but I'm, I'm fasting and stuff. You know, I don't drink alcohol anyway. So, you know, I'm not drinking alcohol but um yeah so it's been incredible and it's really helped me a lot and i'm going to church every week um i'm reading passages from the bible um that i think you know the parable of the lost sheep where a sheep gets separated from a flock and you know i'm seeing parallels with modern society like every story in the bible we can find a parallel with modern society so the lost sheep is a story the shepherd losing a sheep, just like a child is being lost in the wilderness and being confused with gender these days. And it's the shepherd's job, the adult's job to go out there and save that child and bring them back into the flock. So, you know, I feel many of the stories in the Bible can be related to what's going on in today's society. And, you know, it's a great thing. It's a positive thing. You know, if we had more people reading Bibles and, you know, going to church and and less people medically transitioning, you know, I think the world would be a much nicer place. Um, so yeah, I'd recommend it to everyone that you know, might be struggling or they need some faith in their life. It can really turn your life around. That's a really great message. And I wish you luck on your first line. It's always a very memorable experience and I hope you enjoy it as much as you can. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the district podcast today. Ollie London, he's the author of the new book, Detransition, a memoir. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. God bless you. Have a great day. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The District. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. To read more content on similar topics, visit thespectator.com.